Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Today's review is of the slow burn haunting of I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Written and directed by Osgood Perkins, the film follows a live-in nurse, Lily, caring for the elderly horror author Iris Blum in a remote Massachusetts home. But soon into her stay, Lily begins to experience unexplainable supernatural events. And to help me uncover the secrets of the pretty thing that lives in the house is my Twitter pal, Micah. How's it going? Great. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jay. No problem. I've been looking forward to uh, chatting with you about this movie. But before we get into it, a fun icebreaker that I like to do with first-time guests is ask them the first experience with a horror movie that left a profound effect on them, for uh, for better or worse. Sure. No, it's a great icebreaker, and I've enjoyed listening to the podcast so far. Um, I had to think about this. Um, you know, I, I was uh, relatively sheltered, I guess, in terms of my you know my my parents didn't let me watch rated R movies when I was a kid. Um, that sounds very so, familiar. <laughs> y- yeah, um, and I certainly intend and am doing that with my own children, <laughs> for what it's worth. But I was thinking about this, and I realized um, I do remember the first really like terrifying movie I saw. And I was, I think I was 11, 10 or 11 years old. And I was a big science nerd when I was a kid, which is not news to anybody who knows me, but I, I, and I continued that. And I I always had a love for marine biology and I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was a kid. And I'm one of those crazy people who actually did that. I actually ended up graduating college with marine biology degree and was a scientist for a while. But when I was 11, I went to, uh, SeaWorld middle school camp in Florida and I stayed with my aunt and she let me watch Jaws. Oh man. And I was, you know, at SeaWorld camp, literally at like the shark exhibit every day. And the day after I watched Jaws, I actually got to dissect a shark. Oh, so wow. sharks were very much on my mind. Mm-hmm. But the thing I remember is the other thing that happened to me is, uh, you know, I, I know this is not super rare, but I had a lot of sleep paralysis when I was an adolescent. So, and I know, and it's not followed me into adulthood. I know some people have really crazy experiences, but it's, I think it's something that happens. I've, I've read, uh, you know, during growth spurts in adolescence or whatever. So I, especially, and, and it's, it's much worse when you sleep in a new place. Like it would usually happen to me when I would stay at my grandma's house, but not at home. And so that was definitely in a new place at my aunt's house. But I just remember watching Jaws for the first time with my aunt and then I went to sleep in this guest room in this house I'd never been in. And I had terrible sleep paralysis. Oh, and I had man. nightmares about a giant shark floating through my room to get me, but I couldn't move. Uh, it, was a, it was a great experience. And I've loved sharks uh, before and since, so it didn't really scar me too bad. But that's definitely my first horror memory. Man, and most of us, I mean, that's a terrifying movie for a kid because I remember seeing that when I was a kid and being terrified of it. And I didn't have that experience. So kind of compounding effects of things of you being so engrossed in the topic of sharks and marine biology, but then to have obviously this this traumatic experience after watching that movie, man. Are you able to watch that movie as an adult without kind of having that awful uh, memory flashback? Oh, totally. I've I've seen it a hundred (laughs) times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's one of those films that a lot of people watch the first time and it's it's unlike anything else you've ever seen at that age. And I think, you're, like you said, uh, your parents didn't let you watch a lot of like rated R movies and mine was the same way. And yet Jaws is one of those movies that 
it's, I believe it's PG, but it's one of those movies that from back in the day was able to sneak in a couple of like really traumatic moments, especially at the end, like when uh, Quint gets eaten in half and it's like, holy shit, where did this horrifying kind of like oh, totally. graphic no. moment come from when for the most part, the movie is scary and it's unnerving, but at the same time, it's barely, there's barely any gore or violence in the movie. Yeah, well, I mean, there's full nudity. There's severed limbs floating in the water and stuff. It definitely would have been PG-13 if PG-13 had existed right. at the time. It's it's really weird to go back and look at those those movies from the 70s and 80s, and you see rated R films that definitely would be PG-13 now. And right. you see PG films that you're like, what? Like, no child should ever, ever watch this film, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, on a side note. I'm like revisiting the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies right now for a sure. series review. And just in like going back and watching the original one, I can't imagine that that movie would be R now, given how actual little blood and gore is actually in that movie. I was surprised. Um, it's it's more about, I guess, kind of the idea of what that movie is, is more brutal than what's actually in the movie itself. It's one of those uh, strange things I've noticed kind of revisiting 70s and 80s movies recently. Yeah, it's very true, which is something, I mean, listen, when I first saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I, you know, I was probably in my 20s and I'm like, okay, what is the big deal here? This is a dumb movie. As I've gotten older and the more I've watched and the more I've watched other films, I really have come to appreciate how, you know, accidentally or intentionally, mm -hmm. it really is a brilliant piece of cinema. And it, and it was really was groundbreaking. And, and I'm, I'm the first, I'm not a fan of slasher movies generally. That's not my kind of horror niche. I like creature features. I like really, really bad campy crap. I like Day of the Triffids and old, you know, really old sci-fi horror stuff. But I, I do I do respect um, what they were trying to do with that film. And again, it's amazing how much fear you can do with sound editing and with, um, you know, just just showing weird crap on a camera that is really jarring and mentally, you know, discomforting for a viewer that has nothing to do with blood or violence even. Absolutely. And I think that that's a great segue kind of into today's film, which is I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, which is completely different than both of the movies we just talked about. And it's able to do so much by doing so little, I think, for a majority of the film. I mean, this is probably, you sold this movie to me as being slow burn horror. And I think that this is probably the slowest burn horror film I've ever watched. Without a doubt. With, in terms yeah. of the pacing and kind of getting to that larger payoff. And yet I largely found that the movie is incredibly engaging and the ways in which Perkins goes about making this a the ultimate haunting film that kind of defies a lot of the haunting, a lot of the conventions of like modern haunting movies where we're very jump scare reliant. We're very kind of like focused on the boogeyman the entire time. And Perkins managed to make a film that avoids kind of falling into, I guess, I don't know if it's a pitfall of the genre, but it's kind of like an over-reliance on a lot of genre tropes. Yeah, and I, I really, um, I, I mean, I like this film. I, I do have some mixed feelings about it, but I do like it. It is without a doubt, as you said, it's the slowest slow burn horror film that I've ever seen. It's definitely a horror film. It's definitely extremely slow. And I mean, there's other examples we can talk about of, of so-called slow burn horror films and they all look you know kind of fast paced compared to this right but i i do appreciate that he's you know oz perkins and doing this film is unapologetic it's so intentional every single shot is so intentional that you know love it or hate it I, you got to respect what he was what he was putting out there um and i you know i think this film is not for everyone um if you you know if you're going if like if you're looking for a slasher 
or if you're looking for tons of jump scares, you will find neither of those things at all in this film. It's I don't know where you want to start, but it's it's almost it's like a period film, but it's not a period. Right. But it's it's set relatively modernly. It's kind of generational um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and I thought about this, and I mean I've rewatched it several times, and you know go crazy with identifying the years of the cars that are very briefly at the end of the film, but largely this film could be set. It could be happening in 1980 or 90 or 2000 or today. It's really just kind of unclear. It's kind of, it, it wouldn't be earlier than that, but really anytime over the last 30 or 40 years, this film could have taken place because it takes place with so few people in an old house that's kind of decorated in an old fashioned way. So it very much gives you that feeling of being, of watching a Victorian period film, even though that's not what you're watching. And I think that's a testament to how much Perkins is able to do with so little, right? I mean, you've got this single location setting. Generally, there's not more than two characters in the scene together. And the moments of dialogue are so brief that they almost are kind of not the focus of the film, really. It's more about kind of right. just being lost in this setting and then trying to uncover the mysteries that are layered into this house and the people that have occupied in the house over the years. But I wanted to come back for a second. You and I had talked briefly before this about some of our favorite slow burn horror movies. And we both said, that we'd seen like The Black Coat's Daughters, which was Perkins' previous film, The Invitation, The House of the Devil. These were all films that, to your point, you had said, oh, these are films that seem like they're light years faster compared to this one, uh, just right. in terms of the pacing. So I'm curious kind of what about the specific narrative pacing in I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House really appeals to you? Uh, well, I, I feel that, listen, I, I mean, I'm a fan of so-called poetry in cinema, right? Um, I mean, one of my favorite films is Stanley Kubrick's um, Barry Lyndon. It's like my favorite film. And that is basically a, you know, a three hour painting on film. And so, but I, again, it's, it's really about being deliberate. Like, I'll give you a good example. I, I once, I saw one person reviewing this film on YouTube and they were comparing it to Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lay or Rosalind Lai, I'm not sure how to say it, from 2012. And I hated that film. I, I think it's a terrible film because I think it, it was like a Hollywood movie that tries to be slow burn, right? It's, it's, uh, it's got, it had a much bigger budget. But when you go, if you look at that film, like I watched them back to back, just I was rewatching The Last Will and Testament of Rosalind Lay in, in preparation for this. And it's not slow burn at all. It doesn't <laughs> feel that way. It feels like they're jumping camera shots, you know, that it's like, oh, here's a slow pan shot, but it's only eight seconds long, you know, and then here's another slow pan shot and it's five seconds long. And it's, it's, it felt like somebody saying, oh, we're going to try and give this a different tone, but we're really just going to throw a monster up on the screen and see what scares people. And that's really it. And this is so deliberate and his pans are so slow that you really focus on the details and you and what's interesting again just i don't want to overly compare these two films but the last will and testament is about a guy who inherits right he inherits his mom's house and it's just full of crap it's full of stuff right on every wall in every room and this film the house is so empty and i am the pretty thing that lives in the house right it's so bare that you really see you know you notice things like oh there's a spot of dirt on that wall that must be important, right? Mm -hmm. And and he really makes you feel it. And we can talk also about how he uses sound, um, and that's a big part of it too. 
or, or specifically doesn't use sound, right? How there's so, there's so little music in the film, very, very little, uh, and that really contributes. Your comparison to this as a poem, I think, is really at the core of the entire experience, right? And I think a lot of the kind of divisiveness of the reviews and the perception of this film is that, well, for starters, I don't think that this necessarily should have been acquired by Netflix just because this is not a general audience kind of movie. You know what I mean? Right. Like if you see a movie pop up in the top 10 on Netflix these days, you kind of have a general idea of what it's going to entail, right? It's going to be very jump scare heavy. It's going to have mainstream appeal. So I think that the way that this film looks from the outside and kind of knowing and expecting it to be similar to Black Coat's Daughter, which is definitely a faster pace than this, but I think that that film had a more satisfying payoff. But largely about the film that you kept referencing, that film sounds like an imitation of what somebody thinks a slow burn art house film would be. Whereas right. Perkins really has the restraint that you need for those long panning shots that you mentioned. Like that's what is jumped off the screen to me in the beginning of the film in that we have those slow pans around the bedroom and it's very eerie because there's one beam of light that focuses on the center of the screen and it's just a camera panning and we see like kids sleeping in their bed, but there's no context for anything. Right. Right. And that is such a haunting portrayal and it shows that I believe this is his fourth film, I think. And he just has so much restraint in letting the camera linger there, especially when our protagonist Lily ends up in the house after she speaks with her employer. Employer leaves and we just get all of these panning shots of empty rooms in a house. Instead of that being like boring or drawn out, creates a sense of atmosphere. You can see something creepily unfolding in this house. And when the house is introduced early on, when she arrives, it's daytime. And I found myself picturing how creepy this house is going to be in four or five hours when the sun goes down. And eventually when it does, these very kind of just simple panning shots around this environment are starting to be filled with shadows later on. And then you start thinking to yourself like the uh, occupant is dementia and basically bedridden. So Lily is essentially alone in the house. And you've been in a house by yourself before at night a strange house, no less, probably, if you're staying at a friend's or a distant family member's. And then the way that the darkness in those spaces begins to kind of prey on your fear and your sense of uh, sense of not being so in an environment that you're familiar with really st uh, stood out to me. I agree. And I, th I think I, I, a lot of shots in the film, and especially the way the film jumps around with time, reminded me of The Shining and how the film starts. You know, you see Lily. She's there her very first night. She has her phone conversation with her friend. And then it jumps to like 11 months later, right? Like a, a significant time jump, but she's wearing exactly the same thing. She's doing exactly the same thing. And you get a sense for this lady, if, if, even if uh, we can talk about interpretations of the film, but whether she's crazy or this is a real haunting or whatever's going on here, any normal person would go crazy being alone in this house with zero visitors for like a year. It's so interesting how supposedly like, or like you said, 11 months have passed. And yet the way that she moves around the house, it's almost as if she still has no real familiarity with the house. The house itself, right. you can see it being this, th this place that you can never really be comfortable in, no matter how long you're in it. And that speaks to one of the larger ideas of the film that comes to this idea that like ghosts are bound to the house. You can only ever borrow a house. You can never own a house right. because the house belongs to the ghosts. And I think that that's so key in her un kind of covering the mystery. You would almost think that she would uncover it quicker than she does, granted how long she's there for. So that was something that I thought was interesting. Just the way that we're able to explore the same 
areas of the home, and yet we never get familiar with it. It always becomes creepy or it's very unsettling because we keep uncovering new bits of the mystery and it keeps altering slightly. So we never feel too, too comfortable in that house. I agree. And I have a question for you because I think it's really, really interesting. As slow as this movie is and as much time as you, the viewer, spend staring at the walls of this house, you know, I never felt, you know, you know how you feel in The Shining, like the house is a character Mm -hmm. or even in Psycho and certain other movies that are very featured around a certain, you know, setting. I I never felt in this film that the house itself really was a character. And it was re- I was really focused on, okay, these are the three women involved. You've got the author, you've got Polly, the character in the book, and you've, got, um, and you've got Iris. And I never felt like the house became a character. And I don't know if that was intentional or not intentional or just my interpretation. I totally agree with that. This is definitely one of those films where the haunted house itself never becomes a character. Um, it re- the focus really is, and I, I would assume it's intentional, the focus is on those three characters and their three different storylines. And I would almost say that instead of the house becoming a character, it's more about kind of their grief becoming a character in and of itself, right? We've got these right. three women in three different periods of time that while their fates their fates are all going to be the same, they're going to kind of suffer in different ways. Obviously, you have Polly, who we learned was murdered. You have Iris, who for whatever reason was only ever considered a kind of like second rate horror author. She never kind of like ascends to the potential that she might have had to be a successful author. And then you have Lily, who, like you said, she kind of seems crazy or unstable, or why is she still doing this? Why has she not had visitors kind of things? So right. I think a large part of the film is kind of just taking these three female characters, different ages, and kind of their grief itself is what obviously haunts the house itself. It's But the focus never leaves the idea that their grief is what is kind of becoming a character rather than the house itself. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do think it is intentional, especially the more I think about it, because, I mean, I actually I actually spent four years working in Braintree, Massachusetts, where this set. So I'm very familiar with the area. I was going to say, this film is uh, set in my neck of the woods. Yeah, this is very Braintree. This, you know, South Shore, Boston suburbs. And and it's the whole vibe of it is like, yeah, this is a ghost story and this is how all ghosts, you know, it feels like the message is this is how this is just how ghosts work. This is how ghosts, whether it's the 1600s or the 2000s, this is just how ghosts work. And that's why it has this kind of strange, timeless feel where you could have, you know, a ghost in Victorian era dress like we see Polly floating around in the film, but also Iris and Lily and however, however they end up. It's just this This could happen in anybody's house, you know, in any circumstance. It just happens to be happening here. I think that that is the key to this film and why this film, I think, resonates with me in a way that really speaks to just how successful of a slow burn it is in the overall atmosphere, right? Because in The Shining, for me, like, obviously, it's a fantastic film. I love the film. But it's one of those movies where it's like, yeah, it's tied to that singular location. It's tied to the Overlook Hotel. But this film, The Haunting, like, like you said, I mean, this is my neck of the woods, brain tree. I've been in plenty of houses that look like that. So I can see myself in a scenario like that. Even where I live now, like to a certain extent, if I'm here alone at night and the rain is going and there's a crazy storm, I start to think about the setting that this film takes place in and the atmosphere in the house and the way that they weaponize my fear of the dark in just a lingering shot of like an open door. Like for me, that's one of the creepiest shots in the film is when Lily is 
hears that banging that we'll uh, get into in a minute, that perpetual banging in the house. And she just, the camera just kind of lingers on an open door and she just stares into the blackness of the hallway. And like you said earlier, like the way that they're able to use the music very subtly and just the very minimal use of sound, it does make this a type of fear that's applicable to any setting. It's not it's not the type of uh, scare or atmosphere where when you leave the theater, you're like, well, that can never happen to me. Right. And especially like like you mentioned earlier, the, the beginning shots of the film where you have that, I don't know the technical term for it, but the kind of the this, this spy shot where it's dark and you can only see what's happening in the center of the frame. But that, um, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the interpretations of the film at the end, I guess, but that's identical to the end right. of the film, right? It's the same shot at the beginning. The movie ends and begins with the exact same shot of a ghost just looking around. And it's the exact same camera technique that's used in the sinister films, mm. right? But there you're waiting for something, you know, ho- you know, horrific to happen and brutal and you're just on pins and needles. And here the intent is just, no, the, the ghost is not going to hurt you. It's just, it's just there. This is just how it is. Right. And somehow, like you said, that's, that's so much creepier, I think, than to watch a film like Sinister and you see some demon attacking, you know, kids or whatever. It's just totally unsettling to say, no, this ghost is just looking at you sleep all night, every night, forever. <laughs> I mean, when you put it like that, yeah, it, when you're comparing a film kind of like Sinister with a film like I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House, in Sinister, there's an end goal, right? You want to expel the demon. That's There right. is either a way to do that or there isn't a way to do that. And obviously, we know how Sinister ends. But in this film, there's no clear cut. There's no success. There's just kind of finding a balance of learning that a ghost lives in your house and you're either going to end up like uh, Lily or you're going to end up like... Iris, who almost befriends the ghost. And I think that that balance is probably more terrifying because like you said, oh, you just, your new norm in life is you have to get used to a ghost watching you while you sleep. Uh, And you're either going to accept that life or you're not. But one thing that I was thinking about in terms of this film and how it kind of defies the general kind of jump scare, the boogeyman jumps out at you every few minutes is the few minor scenes early on of the hauntings, right? The red flags that Lily comes across. And given how slow of a pace this movie is, I was surprised how many minor moments there are, whether it be the phone cord moving at the very beginning and the phone gets yanked out of her hand, or you have kind of the more traditional one where she turns off the TV and the static goes away and then she sees Polly's reflection in the TV. Um, Or even like the blueberries where her arms begin to, um, I think they're, mold infected or something to that extent right she starts to have these mini hallucinations throughout the house and i was actually pleasantly surprised to have those little moments even though i think a couple of them are kind of just standard genre fare you turn around somebody's in the doorway kind of coming back to what we said earlier i understand why this film is not for everybody and i don't think it's perfect and obviously but i do think it deserves more credit than it just being perceived as a slow burn movie where nothing happens. Yeah, it def- it definitely is not that. This is not a boring film. This is a very intentional film. And we can you can, you mean you can debate about whether, you know, what he's doing works and some I, I mean I I have criticisms about it too. But um this is not a boring film. This is a very intentionally done film um that does ramp up the scares, you know, I I think at a good pace. I mean, I never felt for a moment that the pace was wrong for this film at any point that I was watching it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that I really think a lot of people overlooked. This is not a boring film, whether even in those lingering shots that kind of display his Perkins restraint and feeling the need to put a scare into a scene where there just does not need to be one to craft that atmosphere that we keep talking about. I mean, at the same time, you're kind of enamored with just that sense of space coming back to that, how he's able to, he knows when he needs to put these little kind of breadcrumbs in, in terms of like when we start to unravel the mystery and everything that occurred within the house and why things are happening in the house. So in that regard, I was really pleasantly surprised that the film kind of, it holds my interest all the way through, even if at certain points, I think he maybe could have executed differently or had a bigger payoff in certain sections. It's definitely a film that captivated me more than I think some other slow burn films have. A lot of times I find that some slow burn films, they have a lot of downtime and that downtime is not necessarily utilized as well as it could be. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I, you know, there's, there's the classic three act, you know, that every horror movie goes through. And I'm, I'm not sure this film really follows that. And I think that throws a lot of people, you know, off. It's so, it's so common that like, okay, well, you have character development, right? And then crisis and then punchline or the final girl or whatever the cliche is that happens at the end. And I think he was trying to say, well, no, this is not that. This is, this is a Massachusetts old house ghost story. And this ghost is going to be doing this. I mean, you're only watching this for 90 minutes. This ghost is going to be doing this for 90 years. Mm -hmm. So don't expect a, a ramp up like, you know, you would get in another film. Right. Yeah. That's one of the hardest things with selling these types of slow burn films to, I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to say like only hardcore horror fans, but it's like, you need to make somebody aware, I suppose, before they go into a movie like this, which again, if this had been distributed by anybody other than Netflix, I have a feeling that people would have had a different expectation of kind of what this film was. Cause like you and I had said, we both have criticisms, criticisms of it, but I mean, I don't think it should be as a, as divisive as it is. I think part of the, I, th I think part of it might be just bad luck for Oz Perkins because I know he made this he made this after Black Coat's Daughter, but it because of some distribution issue. I don't know the details, but I know that it ended up getting released on Netflix before Black Coat's Daughter was released. It it might have been perceived differently if because I, I I think the world of Black Coat's Daughter I think it's a fantastic film. It's a it's a more traditional horror film in a lot of ways, but it still very much relies on atmosphere, and it's just it's just great. I mean, I really like that film a lot, and I think I think the reception for this might have been different if everyone had seen Black Coat's Daughter, and then a year later it's like, ooh, here's the you know here's what's next from this guy. What is it going to be like? And instead, it was the reverse. Everybody got Oz Perkins like he's the guy who tells this boring ghost story, and then and that's what kind of started him. So. I, I, them, I think that was just some bad luck, um, but he's clearly just a fantastic filmmaker um, and surely has a very long and great career ahead of him. And I'm, I'm, I'll see anything he makes. I mean, I'll, I like everything I've seen so far. Yeah, he's somebody that I just kind of became aware of in terms of like he had that film, uh, Hansel and Gretel, that came out, I believe this year, um, which I just saw. And then I was like, oh, I should like go back and watch some of his other stuff. So I watched... Black Coat's Daughter and loved that. And then obviously I watched uh, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. And that's the one thing that I've noticed is consecutive amongst his films is that he is very capable of taking any setting and immediately tapping into a haunting atmosphere that kind of ties into all of these different characters' fears, no matter what their backgrounds are. And 
he's he really does have it sounds very cliche to say but he has a a nightmarish quality to presenting things and no element is greater in this film than that of those brief i don't know what how i want to what i want to call them i guess they're like brief moments where it's a black background and then you see a ghostly figure that's all blurry and you can't quite right. make out the indistinguishable features of it you just know that it's a woman and then you see that all her features are blurred out and there's moments of narration that talk about Polly and I think they're clips from one of Iris's books but those moments that break up the film I think there's two or three instances of them moments like that are so jolting and jarring to the rest of the film which are not nearly as overt I mean you have those brief moments that we mentioned earlier but these are the moments that kind of grab the audience and remind them like this is a very this is a traditional almost gothic haunting in that your perception of things might be skewed based on what you actually think is happening. And those moments for me, I mean, those are such a highlight of the movie that I don't see. I mean, we keep talking about people that have watched this movie and they've said, oh, it's boring or whatnot. I don't know how you can't be taken with the kind of just nightmarish imagery that he presents. And I mean, in everything I've seen him do. Yeah, I think it's very effective. And I, and I also think, again, I hate to overuse the word intentional, but in paying really close attention to those moments, or I mean, they're not even moments. And I think there's a lot more. I think there's five or six of them at least where, and it also alternates. If you pay attention, you know, it starts with the poly ghost. And then there's this point halfway through where it's Lily. It, it's not poly anymore. And, um, but, but if you also listen like to the opening narration, right, you have this, I don't know how long it is, four or five minutes at the very beginning of the film. And it starts that way, right? It starts after the, after the uh, the kind of the spy cam shot that we talked about, it's a rather long narration with a very you know fuzzy um, image of a ghost. And but if you listen closely, what what happens is at, over the course of those few minutes of intro, there there's a lot of audio distortion. Like the narrator's voice sounds kind of like it's underwater. It's it's a very kind of distorted sound, and the image is extremely blurry. And then slowly, it, the, the, the blurriness of the image gets a little bit sharper and the garbling of the sound gets a little bit diminished. And I really felt like he was, again, you know, trying to, he's like easing you into like, I'm going to show you an excerpt of his story, which began before this film and which will continue after this film. And I'm going to bring this into focus for you, you know, kind of literally into focus and, and from a video and an audio perspective, I'm going to bring this story into focus for you because, because then again, at the end, it kind of goes out the same way it came in. I mean, the film begins too, when we meet Lily, there's such a brief interaction between her and her employer. And then we get that internal monologue where it's her saying, I just turned 28 years old and I won't live to be 29. And that's such an ominous beginning to the film to be introduced to supposedly the protagonist. But I think that that does such a great job early on of just establishing this is not going to be a happy ending. And I think that's so key to a haunting film, really, and what separates this film from, I don't know, something like The Others or even something like a classic like The Innocents. There's this idea that there's always a, there's a potential for a happy ending. And the fil this film does such a great job of capturing the essence of a haunting in that this is essentially an eternal suffering to some extent that will never end for the ghosts. Right. And said, and said inversely, not only there's no happy ending and there's no twist. 
There is no twist in this film. There yeah. won't be. I'm telling you right up front. There's not going to be a twist. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I think that that is key because, again, it kind of goes back to the expectations some people might have. But it really does portray the sadness that is ghosts. And I mean, that should always be at the heart of like a gothic haunting type film for me, at least, is that you really have to. It's not supposed to have a happy ending. It's not supposed to have a twist where there's uh, a bright light at the end of the tunnel type thing. It's supposed to be about sadness and grief and what those emotions of the living, how those carry on into the afterlife and how that afterlife is going to be a continuation of those awful events that happened and whatnot, which, I mean, you can go back to however many hundreds of years of literature of ghosts and hauntings, a genre that has been very Hollywoodized in a lot of ways that I think is what I appreciate so much about this film in that it's, ve- to use the uh, your word, it's like it's very intentional every step of the way. The type of ghost story this is, it's specific to the environment, it's specific to the time periods that it explores, and it's specific in the sense of kind of just misery that these people experienced when they were alive and how they're going to, how that misery is going to affect other people that come into that house for, like you said, the next 90 years, the next, who knows how many years, forever. Yeah. And I I appreciated too, that he relies on kind of ghost cliches, but again, he does it intentionally. Like, you know, in a lot of the narration um, and and a lot of people who gave negative reviews of the film have problems with the narration. Um, And, you know, there's, there's some of it that's, uh, I, I guess it could be shorter. Um, there's barely any dialogue in the movie though. So if you don't have that, if you don't have that narration, then it's just, then perhaps I wouldn't be so enamored with the sense of atmosphere if it didn't have that, what I thought was terrific narration. I I agree. I thought it was written beautifully. And I think if you got rid of that, then it truly would be a boring film. It would be so boring. Right. Um, but I appreciate it in the, in the, you know, repeatedly throughout the narration at different points in the film, they talk about, you know, basically what it means to be a ghost. It's somebody who's stuck, who can't get out of the windows or doors, even though they're open, right? Who sees through everything through this film and is always looking backwards. And, uh, and you know, and that's portrayed visually with the twisted torso of the ghost. You have a ghost who's literally, you know, coming and going, but can't go anywhere. That and then, and then, of course, all the imagery about rot and, uh, and you know, repeatedly Lily in her narrations talks about, you know, this is what it means to rot. I'm rotting now, rotting with the memories of their own deaths. There's all, I mean, there's all these great little phrases. And I, I, can, I can see how some people just say, oh, yeah, that's just really pretentious film school gobbledygook narrating. But uh, I don't, I mean, I couldn't write it better. I, <laughs> I, I think to get the atmosphere you want and to tell a story from beginning to end by the ghost whose story it is. I mean, I think it was done beautifully. Yeah, and those moments too. I mean, even for the moments that are a little more on the nose, it's just like talking about the rot. You see the rot in the building, the rot in her, those things, which some moments, some people, I guess, might have a case be like, oh, that's kind of just standard genre fare. But at the same time, like Iris is supposed to be this perceived kind of second-rate horror writer in a lot of regards. So those little clips that they might say like, oh, that could have been written better or something. Wouldn't it make sense? Because Lily's narration, like all of her fear and her experiences are being funneled through Iris's uh, writings largely because she, Mm -hmm. the more that she becomes fearful of this house and obviously there's a haunting going on, but it's also like she's becoming involved in being engorged into Iris's world in this horror that she's been writing. 
So I don't have a problem with the narration at all. And again, kind of like I said a minute ago, without the narration, it becomes a very dull film. I agree. And also it, it, it couldn't have been because you're watching one woman in a house alone. I mean, there's no other way practically to 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 express these things. You have more you have more minor moments of kind of the traditional little scares that we talked about where it's like you, how many times is the phone going to get yanked out of her hand? I know. Right. Well, and it's like there was in the last, the last will and testament of Rosalind Lay also had narration, and I thought that was totally unnecessary, right? There, like there was the mom, you know, complaining to her son from beyond the grave, basically. But you could have, you know, shown a page of a journal, or there could have been other. There's a lot of other ways to have accomplished that in that film, whereas here, I don't. I think it was the only and best way to to get that to get that atmosphere and to be very straightforward about what you're trying to do. And that's why I don't understand a lot of the the people throwing the word pretentious at this movie because it all feels very intentional and it all melds together in such a way that each part complements one another. Again, like all of those lingering shots, they serve a purpose in terms of establishing this kind of this haunting atmosphere, but then there's haunting narration to go along with it. So at sure. each component of the film it kind of just fits all together in a way that avoids being pretentious because it seems as if, and he is, in my opinion, succeeding at the very intentional form of gothic haunting in a very traditional setting. Right. And, and anyone who's actually read a gothic horror novel knows that the language in any one of those books is a hundred times more pretentious sounding than anything in this film. Right. right. <laughs> right. And coming back for a minute to something that you mentioned, you mentioned Polly the ghost and distinctly, she's not just a ghost. But she is a ghost whose torso is facing forwards and her legs are facing backwards. And so I wanted to kind of dive a little bit into what the symbolism is behind that, that you think. I mean, I, I just interpreted it as again being stuck, right? Is you're stuck inside this house. It doesn't matter which direction you go. You'll, you, you can't really go anywhere. Um, I also have some, you know, some, some ideas about time in this film and, and interpretation of time. And how maybe, and maybe I'm reading too much into the film now, but but uh, how this could be a tale of how ghosts experience time much differently than the living. And really, whether it's, you know, 50 years or 100 years ago or 100 years from now, maybe it doesn't really matter so much to the ghosts and they kind of experience it all in one place. So the whole concept of backwards and forwards might not matter. Although I will say... Uh, at the the very last shot we get of the ghost of Polly in the film, her torso is not twisted anymore. It's her her, her body is is in, is in normal proportions again. So, um, I mean that leads to one possible interpretation of the film is that the whole thing was just a trick of Polly's ghost to get Lily to replace her mm -hmm. or something to that effect. Um, that's one way to view it. Yeah, I definitely would agree that I think the twisting of her body is that it presents this idea that ghosts live nonlinear lives in the afterlife, right? Cause, and we see that in the film where we're jumping between the three time periods and there isn't a lot of sense to the different ways in which there's no pattern to the way that we explore these different time periods and, ex and experience more of the backstories of characters. Um, I would definitely agree with that. Also this idea that she can't look behind her, which I mean, you could, I could, I interpreted that as her turning her back on red flags, this idea that Polly never 
noticed any of the red flags that her husband was about to kill her. Uh, perhaps she turned her back on those. Or you have Iris who turned her back on all the different red flags in terms of hauntings that she experienced in the house. And same with Lily. Like Lily doesn't leave the house. We see that haunting that she has. Supposedly, I would assume it's the first night with the phone. And then, like you said, 11 months jump ahead. Are we really to be led to believe that there wasn't a single other haunting in 11 months that caused her to be like, hey, maybe I should find another source of employment? Right, right. <laughs> or at least a friend, something. Yeah, or, yeah, get a friend. Maybe, yeah, keep somebody in the room to document this or something. Do you want to talk about some of the things that at, at least, uh, like, criticisms we have, things I didn't sure. think worked or, or had questions about. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear uh, a couple of your criticisms of the film. Yeah, I, I think um, that, that, this is a small thing, but it's it's hilarious to me how many people I've heard reference this in negative reviews of the film is the stupid chair on the wall in the kitchen. Oh, <laughs> because the and the same thing when I watched the film the first time for half the movie, I'm like, why is this chair floating upside down and nobody's talking about it? It's a bit on-the-nose no on uh, poltergeist reference. Right, right. <laughs> it's a little bit too on-the-nose. Um, obviously, it's literally just a chair hanging on the wall, which is what they used to do in those old houses to keep the floor clean and give yourself more space. You just hang the chairs up when you weren't sitting in them. But there's lots of shots with that chair, like very intentionally in the frame. And I mean, maybe that was something symbolic he was trying to do. It did not work for me. I thought it was just a distraction and the film would be better if it weren't there because your eye is just naturally drawn to this unusual thing on the wall, but it never seems like that's what he's actually wanting you to focus on. Now that you mention it, that's, that was an incredibly distracting thing that popped up so frequently that both you and I took note of it. Just this idea you would have something there. And I, like you said, maybe there's some greater uh, symbolism behind it, but I don't think he explored that in a meaningful way to have it keep reoccurring in the backgrounds. And there's a couple other things that also just kind of, show up in the film but then just go nowhere right like her her initial um her initial converse phone conversation where she talks about you know she clearly just broke up with her fiance whatever but then again then there's just no mention of that of any kind in the rest of the film was that was the point of that just to show that she's kind of emotionally fragile or unstable or, or unstable i guess um but it kind of was just a distraction and you end up you know, watching like, okay, what, how is that going to become relevant in this film? And then it just never does. It kind of just serves for that phone yank scare, which I mean, you, right. you, I guess now that I think about it, you wouldn't even have to include that subplot about a boyfriend because she's just on the phone with a friend checking in. Yeah. And I mean, the, the phone yank scare honestly was also a negative for me just overall. I mean, I think be, because you could have explained if you didn't have that, I mean, you can stretch and, exp and, and call her crazy and explain everything away if you want to, but it's really hard to explain that away, the phone yank scare. But if, if he had chosen some other kind of supernatural thing to happen to her at the beginning, then I, I think you could have an interesting interpretation of the film that literally Lily's just crazy. Like you right. could have, whether that's right or not, you could have gotten away with that interpretation Yeah. if you just changed that one small thing about the film. Yeah, that was that was definitely the most overt scare, a supernatural scare in early on in the film. But it is one that I would agree. You, it just, I mean, it just feels so. It's just a very fickle scare. Like it doesn't carry any weight in terms of the larger narrative. And what? Why would that happen just once? You would assume that if that's right. going to happen 
the first night, that's going to happen constantly. And I, I mean, I would assume you would agree if you enjoy this type of film and haunting films, the scares always need to be tied to some deeper trauma that happened in the house. Much like in this film, we find out like the banging that she hears and she assumes it's pipes. No, that's actually the haunting banging of her husband nailing her body into the wall, which makes that subtle scare that much terrifying because there's that emotional weight tied to that and that tra and tragic weight in terms of this poor young woman was murdered and her husband put her in a wall and then left or something like that. Right. Whereas just like yanking a phone out of somebody's hand, that's not tied to any larger narrative thing. And also Polly, Polly's ghost, you know, moves so incredibly slow. I, it, she doesn't seem like the kind of ghost to be yanking phone cords out of people's hands. She doesn't do anything quickly. And this idea that she's not that the ghost itself is just wandering around. So in this one instance, the ghost decides, oh, I'm going to yank this out of her hand. Whereas the other moments in the film, she just appears behind her in the reflection of the TV or she's following her around the house. So you would think that she would kind of interact with her more, but... One thing that I noticed with Irish Blum, and maybe this is me reading too much into this, but this film is very much the antithesis of what a lot of Blumhouse movies entail, like jump scares and all these things. Oh, and yeah. her last name is Blum and the film takes place in a house. I don't know if- The house of Blum. I, I, like Blumhouse. I don't know if that's, uh, <laughs> that might be me reading too much into that, but I thought that was kind of funny considering how this film, again, a lot of the- divisiveness about it comes from this idea it's not traditional if a traditional audience goes into this film more likely than not they're going to be well that was boring or the kinds of words that we hear uh, attributed to slow burn horror a lot of the time well the only other thing i was going to say is um is this this stupid rug the corner of the rug keeps keeps turning up yeah that that happens like three times in the film and goes absolutely nowhere. Mm -hmm. Even even I was thinking, you know, maybe she trips on the rug at some point. Just nothing. Just nothing ever happens. And and again, what's kind of why are you making your audience keep track of these things in their minds that just go nowhere? Didn't yeah, I kept trying to figure out what the deal with that was. I didn't know if that was supposed to be because at a certain point in the film, I was trying to convince myself this was not a haunting, right? And I mm -hmm. actually have a theory that I want to float by you at the end before sure. we wrap up. But I didn't know if that was supposed to symbolize that the old woman is actually moving around the house without mm -hmm. her knowing. And I didn't know if that was supposed to be a hint at that. My other theory on that was perhaps when she has the heart attack at the end of the film and she sees Polly, perhaps she kicked that over. But it, that wouldn't really make sense in terms of where she was when she had her heart attack. Um, right. So, yeah, that was a very strange thing to keep kind of referencing. And those moments that you've highlighted they seem so out of place, especially considering how intentional 80% of the film is. And then you have these little moments that it's like, okay, so why are we focusing on these moments? The, the only last thing I'll mention is I was just really confused by Bob Balaban's char character, the, the estate guy. I, I could not figure out like, what is kind of, what is the point of this character? I mean, I know, I know you, obviously some, somebody needs to get Lily into the house Somebody needs to find her at the end. I, I get that. Mm -hmm. But and, and I love Bob Balaman, right? He's a, like one of my all-time favorites. Love the guy. But I, I just couldn't figure out the direction of like where he's, how he was directed and where he was trying to go with his character. And I was, re and I was even more confused when I, I saw an interview with him talking about this film. And he mentioned, I forget the exact words he used, but he basically alluded to the fact that he viewed his character as somebody who was supposed to like help ghosts find their resting place. Or something like that. 
there's an interview on YouTube of him talking about this, his role in this film. And I was like, what? Is that, that's the direction you were given? Because I, that, I that didn't did, get that at all. That I don't didn't know come across it, at all. No. Um, I just thought you were kind of a weird, a weird quirky guy um, with low social skills. And <laughs> that's, that's really all I got from your character. So I, I was confused as where that was going. Absolutely. Yeah. His character doesn't really add anything other than awkwardness. And I almost feel like his character serves just as a misdirect because he seems very secretive, especially when Lily starts inquiring about Iris's work when, cause she doesn't like horror things. She's a scary cat, I think is what she right. says, but he's like just very secretive about the ways that he describes things. And he's like, Oh, I can't tell you the reasoning behind that and all these different things. So I didn't know if they were supposed, if his character served to indicate like, Hey, maybe there's actually some type of scam or some type of alternative plot going on behind the scenes that is setting Lily up for something. Right. It could, it could have been set up like House of the Devil, right? Exactly. You got this weird, quirky guy and, oh, the twist is, you know, you're about to get murdered or something. Yeah, exactly. That And that's what I assume, too. Um, I assume that that was the setup is that, hey, we're, we need the plot for the next book or whatever, something like that. Some, we need a fall person for some type of scheme. But yeah. And to hear him say that in an interview, which that did not come across at all in his character or in the narrative of the film. <laughs> yeah, or his or his dialogue or anything. I was just really confused, so I'm not sure what that was about. Yeah, that was uh, a very strange uh, character introduction that doesn't do much other than remind you, hey, I should go back and uh, watch some of his work. Did did you? It's hard. It's hard for you know two guys to talk about this, but did but did you get um, any kind of feeling that this was intended to be some kind of feminist? Um, message or feminist film, and I, I asked for two reasons. One is because I, I've heard people compare this in some ways to the Yellow Wallpaper, that that famous mm -hmm. short story, right, about the basically a woman getting gaslit. Yep. For a year. Yep. Um, and then the other one is something somebody mentioned in, in something I read, which I did not know about, but there's there's a, a very famous folk song called Pretty Polly. Oh. And this folk song which has been covered by many different country singers and folk singers or whatever. It's like a horribly graphic, hor like terrible song about oh, a guy who like murders his fiance and gets away with it. Oh, it's, just, it's literally called pretty Polly. And that's, brutal. that's what it's about. <laughs> that's uh, that's rather fitting for this film. So I would agree. Yes, I do believe that this film definitely has. Um, I don't even know if you would call them undertones given the title of the film itself, I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house, right? This idea that these women in the different generations that the story takes place in, these women more or less are treated as things by the people in their life, right? Whereas we have Polly who is treated like a thing by her husband to the point where her husband kills her and puts her in the wall. We have um, Iris who for more or less, again, she doesn't achieve the certain level of fame that perhaps maybe she should have. And I viewed her as being almost like a prisoner in a house where she's forced to, for whatever reason, keep churning out these mediocre horror novels. Whereas we get the indication throughout the film that maybe she's either capable of more or she wants more. Because there's a lot of those shots of her at her desk where she's sitting there contemplating and she never seems like she's very satisfied by what she's doing or what she's writing. So for me, I interpret it as that, is that she's there's some sort of demand or people put her into a corner in terms of their expectations for her and that she was too afraid or they were never willing to allow her to kind of break out of those expectations. Um, so that was my interpretation. 
did you consider this is a, a slight tangent but when when we talk about those those flashback scenes where you go back and and see um miss bloom you know writing this book did you did you consider those scenes to be like flashbacks to her at various stages of writing various different things or were they all flashbacks to like one specific instance where she was haunted i think i saw it as being multiple times because especially in the scene when she has her in the scene in the present when she has her one moment of real clarity with Lily and she's talking about this idea that Polly has turned her back on her. The way that she talks about that, it made me think that she was kind of ruminating throughout different periods of different writing processes of being visited by the ghost, essentially. I, di- I guess I didn't tie those moments to a singular moment. I think I kind of saw it as a period of her life that she was stuck herself in a way. Right. I could, I guess I could watch it again and pay close attention to like, was she always wearing the same clothes and, and the same time of day and everything? I don't know. Um, in talking with you about it, like I already want to go back and try to pick up on things that I missed or little nuances. And I mean, that's one of those things where, again, it comes back to this idea. How could this movie be boring? There's so many little details throughout the film that you can have multiple different interpretations of it. And I kind of want to bounce one of my interpretations off you, which might be a little out there, but I'm interested to hear what you think about it. Go for it. And then I have one too for you. Fantastic. So we had mentioned the phone scare, the fact that we're not a fan of that. It doesn't fit really. So let's forget all about the phone scare for a minute. Let's pretend like that's not in the movie, which is a little bit of a stretch, but I I promise it's going somewhere. The film deals with this mold or this rot. And we learn that that's because Lily's body, or rather Polly's body is in the wall. And then we see this manuscript that's in the attic or there's documents that she finds that were Polly's and there's mold on them to the point that we know the mold is real because she brings it up to um, the land, the realtor that comes by. She even mentions right. it and he says, oh, it's only a year stint that you'll be here a year or two. It probably won't affect your health. I began to interpret this as her kind of sinking into this world of horror novels She's there essentially all by herself. Nobody's coming to visit. And she starts to suffer from the effects of that mold that her fear in combination with declining health makes her begin to kind of hallucinate things that are happening. So that was a non-supernatural interpretation that I had of the film. Like perhaps there is some truth to this idea that like that mold is real, sure, but it's negatively affecting her health, which is making her isolation and her fear in this very creepy, abandoned, essentially empty house kind of weigh on her more than she was expecting. So basically, she, she, your, 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 your theory is she got drugged by some, some bad mold. And as a result, she kind of turned herself into a ghost. Exactly. See, that's funny because my, here's my theory for you, which is kind of similar, I think. But so the, the, there's the scene at the end of the film when... Um, Iris hears the ghost, right? You, you, it's clear that she's, you know, she's young, she's writing, it's a flashback, and she, all she, she just stands up and says, Polly, she just asks if, right? That's all she says. But that, so that happens, that scene is after Lily has died, and Lily is walking, she walks up the stairs, turns the corner, and you, you never see them in the same frame, in the same shot. Mm-hmm. But Lily is like looking into the room seeing iris call out polly's name and so the question for me is it's very ambiguous is iris is is 
is Lily just watching this happen now. And again, this goes back to what I said earlier about how you know ghosts don't experience time the same way. So now Lily just died and she's watching something that happened 50 years ago. Or, and this is my little bit crazy theory, maybe there is no Polly at all. And maybe Lily is Polly. Lily is the one that Iris saw, right? And then we get into this kind of like a time travel loop. I know this is not a sci-fi movie, <laughs> but this is a stretch. But one of my theories is Lily is the ghost that caused Iris to write the story in the first place that would end up being written that Lily, when she was living, would read and would scare her to death. And then you get into a loop, and then like an endless loop. I that totally holds water with me. I mean, this idea it ties back in the idea that like time is a flat circle, right? It's ever rotating and it's never ending. And yet, so I would think that Polly again. So again, like in this time loop, Polly was originally happened with Polly, and yet when these events occur that end up with Lily dying as a result of that, I would think that their ghost consciousness or whatever gets combined into one. So that way now it's Lily who's going back in time and seeing the things that she's kind of, she's uh, absorbed all of the things that Polly did or experienced into her own sort of consciousness now. And like you said, she's visiting Iris at a different period in time. And then she is the one that gets her to write this story through a haunting that ends up with her dying. Right. Or, or maybe it's something more generic and it's just kind of like maybe ghosts, maybe it's just feminine angst and, and feminine, uh, you know, abuse at the hands of men generally. And every, you know, each woman that passes through this house touches on that in some way. Going back to what we were saying about things that didn't add up, originally wasn't the house supposed to be turned into a museum or donated to a writer? Yeah, it was, I, I think it was, right, she was, in her will, it was to be used for a woman to live in, to, I think it was specifically a woman, uh, to, to write, to be a writer. There, yeah, like, it's like, so it's kind of setting it up to be, it's going to be this way forever, right? This, this is the house yeah, just of the, feminine sorrow. Of fem <laughs> in, uh, in Braintree, Massachusetts, a uh, destination locale. Yeah, it's very, I mean, and I love the narration. The narration just adds to all this ambiguity. I mean, I wrote down some of it, right? So like at the end, Lily says, you may borrow this house from me, but I think I'll stay for one more look at her, right? So who is the her? Right. Is it, is it, is it Iris? Is it Polly? Is it herself? Because she references also that she, this is how she lets herself rot. She's looking at, um, I have, and she starts the very beginning of the movie saying, I have heard myself say, the whole thing is just very kind of ambiguous and atemporal in, in many ways. I love it. Yeah, I, I love the ambiguity. I mean, this is definitely the type of movie where people that went into it with different expectations want answers for everything. But again, we wouldn't be having this conversation for as long as we have if it kind of was just a black and white ending. I like this idea that we have are able to develop our own theories. We're able to question almost every aspect definitively kind of like well is, who is she referencing here who was the ghost all along these different things it just makes for a film that is much more interesting and more in-depth than kind of just the atypical ending where it's like oh you've d dispelled the demons or the ghosts from this house type of thing and i think it makes for a very interesting conversation that kind of 
when you actually start to break down all the different layers and pieces that go into making this film, it's not the kind of pretentious art house, even though it definitely is very art house in certain regards. It's not this kind of like pretentious thing that a lot of people seem to portray it as. It's a film that I think has a lot of different layers to it. And as soon as I rewatch it, I'm sure I'm going to have another theory or two developed based off of all of the kind of little details that he's sprinkled throughout this film. Last question. What is she eating? I had a more disturbing thought, but maybe it was the, it could be um, the phone. I thought she was chewing on like an umbilical cord because she was mentioned Mm -hmm. something about birth at the beginning of the film. She, I forget what the quote exactly was, but it was something about how she, she died, how she was born or something to that extent. But that word birth stuck with me. And when I saw her kind of just like chewing on something and it was very rope-like, I, my brain went to the most disturbing thing I could think of. It, it could be that. It could even be her own like outstretched fingers. I mean, I love that the image, it's so, it's so vague what, what is happening, but so terrifying. Yes. Like this, the image of Lily's ghost is way scarier than Apollo's ghost. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, that ambiguity, it speaks to that idea that there's no clear cut answer. Your vision is obscured to a certain extent with it being so blurry that your mind is ultimately going to come up with something more terrifying than sure. It could be a telephone cord or it could be something worse. It could be a part of her or something to that extent. Um, But that's definitely one of those little details that it just shows like Perkins restraint and not caring that some people are going to want a definitive answer or a clear cut at what is haunting. Rather he leaves it up to us to, develop something in our mind that's going to be more terrifying or stick with us or have us questioning the entire film. But in uh in wrapping up, was there any last uh last point that I didn't let you make? No, no. I, I um I've gotten through everything I wanted to talk about. I mean I think it's a cool film. It's not a perfect film. It's 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 unique. I always appreciate seeing some something new. I mean there's every genre has the problem, but I think especially horror has the problem of trying to be inventive and trying to to not be cliche. Um, and we all, you know, no matter how it is, how it comes across, um, we all love new stuff and we all love new ways to to be scared and to and to think about fear and death and and all these things. And and so I think he manages to pull that off where he's told on the on the one hand, told a ghost story that's as old as literature. And on the other hand, he's done something, you know, kind of new and original and and really interesting to watch. I couldn't say it any better myself, so I think we're going to leave it at that. But uh, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today because this is one of those films that it's passed by me on Netflix so many times. And for whatever reason, I kind of skipped over it. But on your recommendation, it uh, it definitely delivered on it being a truly unique slow burn film that, while not perfect, I think it displays Perkins' ability to tell a very classical tale in a new way that is as engrossing as anything I've seen this year that's haunting related. But Thanks again, man, for joining me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.